Hi, you're listening to another episode of Reframing History, and my name is Julian Chambliss. That audio from the 1963 March on Washington calls our attention to the classic narrative of civil rights activism in the United States. In reality, there is a longer history of black activism we should consider. To find out more about this complex legacy, I turn to Deidre Hauschen. Deidre serves as a postdoctoral associate for the Center for the Study of Race and Race Relations in the Levin School of Law at the University of Florida at Gainesville. Let's listen to our conversation. Okay, so I'm here with Deidre Halchen, who is a, a postdoctoral associate for the Center for the Study of Race and Race Relations at the Levin School of Law at the University of Florida in Gainesville. So Deidre, the reason I wanted to talk to you is because of your work on Black education. And really, I think Black agency in early 20th century. So could you talk a little bit about your research, what you did your dissertation on, and your, your current project that you're working on for the sort of latter part of this year? Sure. Thanks for having me, Julian. So um, I started my research oh, about eight years ago with the question, who taught Martin Luther King? And I, I worked on that question for about an hour and a half before I learned that that's not a novel question, that another really, um, you know, a, a mentor of mine, Vanessa Civil Walker, was asking that very same question and thinking about the networks of Black education and Black educators, professional associations across the South <clears throat> from Reconstruction all the way up to desegregation. So I, I'm here in Gainesville, Florida, and I'm very privileged to have access to a particular school called Lincoln High School. Lincoln High School was founded in 1921 but it was the second of two institutions, one of which was started right at the beginning of Reconstruction called Union Academy. And this, these, these two institution um, repository represent 100 years of continuous Black education in Alachua County. So I wanted to, to okay. give people a chance to, because I don't know if people know the geography of Florida very well. So where, when you say you're in Alachua County, that's north central Florida for people who are like trying to puzzle out where we're talking about. And uh, the nearest major municipality would be Jacksonville, Florida. And Alachua County is the home of the University of Florida, which is a sort of flagship research institution. Uh, like a lot Bill of Gator. 
you go Gators, right? Uh, and like a lot of land grant institutions, it is a, a particularly rural area once you get outside of the college town, right? It's very much, if you, you ever been to a sort of like big land grant university, it's in that context. And so in terms of the history of Florida, of course, North Florida uh, is very much the part of the state that was had the highest population in the late uh, and early 20th, late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, that panhandle area is very much associated with sort of Southern experience and Jacksonville, um, which at this time in the early 20th century uh, was trying to be, trying to be Atlanta to be the gateway city of the South, right? Like it's tagline was the gateway city of the South. So the period that, uh, that Deidre was talking about is an important period in this broader, as we've spoken about on the podcast before, this new South period. So I just want to give people that context. Sorry for interrupting you. <laughs> oh, no, that's perfect. That's perfect. I appreciate it. And, and I think the only thing I would add to that, Julian, is that Florida was absolutely part of the deep south. I, right. I, you know, yeah. nowadays we don't tend to think of it that way somehow, but it certainly was. It, 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 when we think about all of the um, connotations about the deep south, that was very much the, the context that black educators were working in during the time period that, that I studied these schools. Right. So a very Southern place with the danger associated with race and um, sort of exploitation associated with the New South that we talked about. We actually had a whole conversation in a previous episode about just this issue of like how people tend to want to remember the South and how Florida gets left out of what the New South is, but it's a repressive in many ways, period. And Florida is is associated with that, especially North Florida. Uh, I would argue more so uh, than say Central Florida or South Florida. Although I think Orlando ironically is sort of historically the break point between a more Southern global Latin American South Florida and a Southern US slave holding Jim Crow um, South in North Florida, um, which makes the work that you're doing even more important. So let me let you get back to talking about it, sorry. For several years, I studied a particular school, Lincoln High School, always with the backdrop of what I had learned about Black um, teacher or, or professional associations in my mind. So I'm always trying to figure out what are the connections between um, various Black segregated high schools, middle schools, uh, elementary schools across the South, but what is the practice look at this particular institution? And I just want to say, first of all, that the only reason that this was possible, that it was, it was possible for me to take such a deep dive into this one particular institution was because the principal of the institution, Aquin Jones, was an incredible archivist himself. Mm, okay. And he maintained a 40, you know, we have 40 boxes of materials on the school's operations, um, the, the parent-teacher association, et cetera, as well as copies of, of all of his um, correspondences between he and the school board. That's mm -hmm. very rare, very, very rare, because for some reason, um, what we find is that most Black schools, when they were closed, which was the norm during desegregation, was that the Black school was closed the black students were shuttled to another school and then maybe the school gets open later much of their material was was mysteriously lost or burned or damaged so there's there's not a lot of archival materials that let us know the day-to-day -day operations of these black institutions 
So when you say mysteriously lost, do you think that that was a deliberate thing on the part of people as they're going through that process of desegregation? Oh, it was absolutely intentional. Okay. Yeah, I think that, that it was absolutely intentional. Um, and, you know, in the case here in Gainesville, Florida, at Lincoln High School, all you hear, you know, when you ask someone officially, they just say the material was destroyed. And when you talk to the people who were the students of the school, they can remember going back to the school, you know, weeks, months after it's been closed, just to see their, co- their trophy cabinets destroyed and, you know, and the school in disrepair. Mm-hmm. So, um, I- I'm actually looking still for more literature. I'm looking for more scholars to talk about that process of, of the destroying of that violence, the, you know, the symbolic violence of, of destroying black schools' histories and, um, and trying to kind of um, silence their acclaim during this process of desegregation. Mm-hmm. But I think that there was certainly, you know, some pushback and some resentment um, at, at having to integrate schools across the South. We're, we're clearly very aware of that and see that in all the pictures of um, schools being desegregated. So another question I have, when you, when you talk about just that issue, I think that's a really important part of how you frame your work, because uh, I know from conversations that we have that you, you put a lot of emphasis on a sort of deliberate systemic activism by Black educators against the marginalizing and diminishing efforts of sort of like Jim Crow segregation uh, in this period. And it's really interesting to me that the work that you do really provides a different way to understand how teachers saw their work, right? Because we often think about teachers as leaders in the community, in the Black community during during segregation as a kind of purely economic thing or or there's a high emphasis on economic things and then there's a an attached social narrative around you know, you know after reconstruction education is important but i think one of the things that having talked to you and i've thought about is that there's a real deliberate effort on the part of teachers and educators to shore up black people in in the midst of segregation right and i think this is a really important point not to say that we, we haven't said that before, but I think you say it a little bit differently. And part of it is because of the organization you talk about, and I know you're about to talk about that, but I wanted to call people's attention to what I think is a really important interpretation that you're bringing to understanding this period. Yeah, I, I would say that teachers, on the ground educators at Lincoln High School, as well as teachers through their professional associations, such as the Florida State Teachers Association, which was the all-black state association of educators. And by educators, I mean higher education educators. So we've got Mary McLeod Bethune in the association. We've got um, N.B. Young, the, the president of FAMU at the time in the association, as well as principals from black high schools and black elementary school teachers, everyone from K-16, if you're a black educator, you're in this association. And I would go so far as to say that they were quite aware that teaching was a political act and that teaching was a political act where they had the ability to infuse 
within Black communities, children as well as the greater community, the, uh, the power to change, to affect a democracy by teaching about rights and rules and laws, as well as principles and values of being a human, mm-hmm. as well as the power to reorganize the social order through specific challenges that they often did and did in a way as to remain hidden on purpose, which is the core of the work that I'm doing now is to expose that hidden organizing and um, reconceptualize it as acts of social justice that teachers did during this time of Jim Crow. So, so the exhibit that I'm working on is called Florida's Black Educators, Secret Social Justice Activist from 1920 to 1960. And it starts off telling the story of the secret meeting that happened in 1937 on the grounds of Howard Academy in Ocala, where five teachers and principals, one of whom was very well-known, Harry T. Moore, the other four of whom none of us really have any, the general public hasn't heard the names of the other four people, but they were his allies. They were they led this movement as much as he did. So they meet together and they launch this equalization campaign in 1937 to, um, to bring lawsuits in the various counties across Florida um, against school boards so that black teachers salaries and white teachers' salaries would be equalized. And it was very strategic. It had been, they had been working on um, launching this for two years prior to that meeting in 1937, and it's more public launch. But when you look at the literature talking about this salary, teacher salary equalization campaign, Mm-hmm. It's almost wholly attributed to the NAACP. You see very little that talks about the role of the Florida State Teachers Association in doing this. And in actuality, they started that having noticed the campaign that was begun in uh, Maryland by Charles Houston and the NAACP. They started that work independently and then and then had to kind of nudge the NAACP several times. You see the letters back and forth between the Florida State Teachers Association, a local lawyer in Florida and Georgia named Samuel McGill, and the NAACP where they're saying, hey, we're doing this. Will you get involved? Will you get involved? And then finally, Thurgood Marshall really, you know, even though he did his director, Charles Houston at that time, didn't want him to take on this case in Florida. He forces the issue, and that's how the NAACP gets involved in this campaign in Florida. And it costs the teachers a great deal. I I know from the reading some of your your research that it's an incredibly compelling story, but I want to want to ask you, why do you think the NAACP was so hesitant to get involved? And why do you think um, Erdogan Marshall basically went ahead? You know, why did he force the issue? Yeah, that's, those are two really great questions. The NAACP, the head, they were hesitant to get involved at first because the strategy that they anticipated using was one where they systematically went through the start, South, starting in Maryland, and working their way through the states on down to Florida. That's, that's what they had hoped to do. I don't think it was, I don't think that strategy was planned as much. That's just what they anticipated. But in every state that they were going to launch some kind of 
salary equalization movement, they needed to have an organized state association of black teachers who were willing to take this on. Mm. The reason that ultimately Thurgood Marshall decided to get involved was because the NAACP had to do no work to organize Florida. Florida had already organized itself and had been organizing itself, as did most state associations, for 30 years. At the turn of the century, the Florida State Teachers Association started. Okay. But it just so happened that these, these particular body of leaders, um, these five men who met in ha at in Howard Academy in Ocala, they were willing to take the risk and had already done the organizing necessary to begin that movement on their own. So they had contacted a lawyer. They had already decided which counties they were going to begin cases in. They had already started those cases. They had already, the, the lawyer had already filed this brief independently on his own. And he was contacting the NAACP to essentially say, we'd like this to be part of your overall campaign, and I'd like your guidance and expertise. But the movement had already begun here. So, the it's right, yeah, well, and, and it's interesting to hear you, you talk about it, because I, I, I don't think that we recognize the importance of the sort of grassroots uh, activism of organizations like the Florida Teachers Association, but it's also interesting that later on, of course, Harry T. Moore will be the field secretary for the NAACP and really, you know, arguably be the first NAACP official uh, murdered as we get into the quote-unquote sort of civil rights era, right? Like, and so his, 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 his activism in this early period, because, you know, he, as you point out, he lost his job from this. Three of the five people who sat at that meeting, Harry T. Moore, Noah Griffin, and John Gilbert, all lost their job behind mm -hmm. these lawsuits. Not only that, but one of them um, was beaten, you know, was, was accosted in the park at, in St. Petersburg because of this case and beaten. So, and those are just the first five. Right. You know, there were at least eight cases in Florida by teachers that were all organized by the Florida Teachers Association between 1937 and 1943. And I think seven of the eight of those people who were teachers or principals lost their job behind that lawsuit. And and this this sort of hidden story, which, you know, I think is an incredibly dynamic story, is really at the core of the the exhibit that you're doing, and it's it's multiple. I know there's multiple parts to your to your exhibit, having and seeing some of your your planning documents. So, could you give people sort of like the outline of what's coming, and and how they could sure. You know, so I think the thing that I would say is, and there's more in that we know that Harry T. Moore goes on and he becomes this major player in the NAACP and is known as the first casualty of the civil rights movement. But with regard to the story of these five men and the FSTA, there's more as well. Like Edward Daniel, who's at that five meeting, he's actually the principal of Howard Academy at, in 1937, who calls them together. He's the secret silent organizer behind all of them. Um, 
if you, when you listen to the, to the interviews and the transcript, they're like, he's really the one who was the most aggressive mm. in terms of pushing for justice or, um, and willing to take risks. In 1949, Edward Daniels goes on to be the chair of the steering committee for the Virgil Hawkins case that ultimately integrates the University of Florida. Wow. So, and his name is in, you, you never hear Edward Daniel's name in connection to the Virgil Hawkins case. Right. But that's ultimately the point of the exhibit to say, when we think about the major battles of social justice that have changed the landscape of, of our time, that make it the way in which we operate in it now, having an integrated university system across Florida. It was a black educator who began working in the bowels of Jim Crow who's ultimately responsible for that, for that story mm. and for the Virgil Hawkins case and the desegregation of U.S. But the nature, of, the nature of the climate in Jim Crow, how hostile, how volatile, um, how dangerous it was, caused black educators across the South, and you find the same story in Georgia, to intentionally hide their activism and create other organizations as covers for the kinds of activism that they're doing. So in Florida, they create something called the Citizens Committee, which is the, the organization that ultimately pushes these um, lawsuits forward. But you, you read in the letters between the lawyers on the ground here in Florida and the NAACP, um, where they are very methodically creating this committee so as to shield black educators. So it's a, it's a beautiful and complex story and that it's a story that reinterprets some of the work of the NAACP. Right. Here in Florida, it is these same black educators who build the, the NAACP. These same five people who meet at Howard Academy are ultimately the ones who go on and are responsible for, for creating Florida's first state convention of the NAACP. Wow. So they're working through the NAACP. They're working through the Florida State Teachers Association. And they're working on issues of desegregating higher education. That is the three-part story that this exhibit is telling. So the exhibit is housed in three locations. It's housed at the University of Florida in the main exhibit hall, right in the middle of the undergraduate milieu. And that piece really talks about the desegregation of the University of Florida, Mm. introduces us to these secret activists and just introduces um, a new audience to the, to the world of black education during Jim Crow. It's also housed at the University of Florida's law school, at the Lawton Childs Library, and that particular portion looks at the story of the NAACP and the role of black lawyers in this movement during Jim Crow and currently. And I'm mm. very privileged and blessed that the the exhibit is also housed at the a quinn jones museum and cultural center which is run by the city of gainesville and its cultural and recreate cultural parks and recreation department and um, the third portion of the exhibit that's there will take us deeply inside the world of african-american pedagogy 
In other words, what were teachers teaching these children about their world and themselves mm -hmm. during this time and in, into the world of the Black Teachers Association? So the, the, the idea of Black pedagogy, I know this is a really important, another important part of like your research. I think people listening will not know what that means, right? So could you tell people... I mean, I think people might have a, a, a kind of improper understanding of what I mean, because I actually think this is a really complicated subject, especially in this period. So I really want you to take a moment to sort of like let people know what you mean when you say black pedagogy. African-American um, teachers were, especially, I study the South particularly. Right. Right. And Southern African-American teachers were teaching teach in ways that are reflective of Southern African-American culture. I think that's the first thing to be clear about, right? So there is a distinct, or there are many distinct Southern African-American cultures, um, and they certainly showed up in school. <clears throat> Those cultural ways of knowing and being showed up in school. When we talk about African-American pedagogy, we're talking about a very distinct, um, manner of showing care to students that resisted the oppression of the outside world and instilled in students this drive for excellence. So you have to remember the positionality of African Americans in the social order. Mm -hmm. And teachers were, teachers were the barrier between um, the community and, and the rest of the world who had certain other views of, of the community. Right. So it was a teacher's job to, one, provide knowledge. Um, and when I say provide knowledge, I mean widen the, child's, um, widen the child's experience to the world outside of the child. So I'm talking about classical, liberal, arts-based education that provides access for the child into the world's knowledge system, okay? And that was intrinsically part of African-American pedagogy. That was, that, was, that was very much contested at that time. Right. So in the South, you know, um, whites didn't want black children to learn classical liberal arts knowledge bases at all. They wanted them to be as, as one of the members of the General Education Board, kind of the Southern Governing Board of Education, to make of men producers, um, producers and manual laborers. That was the goal of education. So you had teachers teaching particular knowledge bases that one, exposed child to the world's knowledges, two, reaffirmed a child's essential human spirit and, and um, human worth and dignity. And there's a real deep, deep thread of spiritual, um, spiritual education as well as partnership with Christian values in Southern African American education. I mean, you even, you see it in W.E.B.'s Du Bois writings as well. This, um, this thin, thin line between church and education or Christianity and education. So there was definitely a drawing on from that tradition um, about human humanity about having some kind of spiritual worth 
or being worthy in a, in, as a child of God. That's the quickest way to think about it. Right, right. As well as, as, well as something that we call insistence, which is this absolute burning determination to use education as a verb, to use it as a tool to transform oneself and the social order. And of course, that came from many generations before these students were in school. We see that in African-American um, educational tradition all from the beginnings of when um, we have written documentation of African-Americans during slavery, right? Yeah. This, this right. knowledge that if they're able to attain education, that it has the potential of being transformative. So it's a reaching, it's a constant reaching for the transformative power of education and an insistence on the, from these teachers that the students be excellent and do use education to move them forward, to generate mobility socially, communally, and individually. Right, so the idea of education as a sort of um, liberatory practice, right? Like, like education is a liberation science and education, despite what, what people might, what they might look at when they see the space that um, Blacks are being educated and your research sort of like calls our attention to, is whatever they said they were doing, they were also doing this other thing too, right? This sort of liberal arts education, like teaching, African-American students to be sort of like full, fully developed, fully realized human beings, which I think is a really interesting thing because we tend to think of, especially in sort of like rural areas like Alachua County in a place like Florida, that the education is geared towards making it possible for those Black students to be good workers, not necessarily be good thinkers. And I think that's just not the case, right? I think that's what your research indicates. That that's not the case, that they're actually the teachers are fully aware that they're educating them to be these sort of full, evolved, engaged citizens. Um, and I think that's really interesting because I don't think that's how we think about education um, once you get away from urban centers. Um, and I think that's a really interesting point. And I'm really interested in, in seeing your exhibit when it's up uh, later this year. And it's going to be up the entire, entire, entire fall semester, right? Yeah, it opens October 15th and closes at the end of December. So if you're going through Gainesville and you want to learn the sort of like the real story of Black educators as, uh, as, as you say, secret social justice advocates and secret social justice warriors, stop in Gainesville and find this exhibit. Um, I know Excellent. that you, you're, you're on Twitter. So what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is my name, so it's the at symbol, and then my first name, Deidre, D-I-E-D-R-E, -E, the letter F, Houchen, H-O-U-C-H-E-N. Awesome. So uh, I know I see you on Twitter tweeting about your work and uh, making some, some insightful comments. So uh, follow her on Twitter. Uh, look for, I think, I know you're working on uh, a bunch of different publications, but uh, I'm sure you'll do it a follow up on those on Twitter and I know you have a whole online apparatus connected to this this exhibit as well that's gonna go online. So I'm sure we'll find out about all that on Twitter. So Deidre, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. 
Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks very much, Julian. All right. And for those of you who are listening to this podcast, again, this is Reframing History. This episode really sort of extends that conversation about us rethinking the narrative of the South um, from this sort of local context. And hopefully you can see how the work that Deidre is doing, really delving deep into what would not necessarily be the place that we would think of as sort of like the space of innovation and resistance in the rural South and, and sort of unknown Black educators, but of course, incredibly important Black educators speaks to the importance of thinking about the local context to shape that broader global understanding of the historical process. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. And of course, check back wherever you do your, your podcast to find out more. Thanks a lot.